It was the time of the morning sacrifice. As the massive temple gates slowly swung on their hinges, a threefold blast from the silver trumpets of the priests seemed to awaken the city as with the voice of God to life of another day. That's how Alfred Edersheim in his book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, describes the beginning of the day on which Zacharias had been elected among the priests to go into the temple and minister before God. It seemed to the Jews that day that it was just a normal day, like any other day. It began exactly the same way. But we know, looking back through the eyeglasses of Scripture, that it was not a normal day. Zacharias went inside the temple. And instead of being able to conduct his business as usual, an angel presented himself before him and announced to him that his wife, who had been barren for a long time and had never had children, and they were both in their old age, that she was going to have a child. And he was to name the child John. And we know this child as John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. And as we take a look at that amazing annunciation, we might have a tendency to look at John and think that he is just some amazing person that is head and shoulders above anything that we could possibly be. As though somehow, as a special child of God, he supersedes us. And yet, when we take a look at what John the Baptist was and what he was supposed to do, the reality is we are supposed to be very much like him. Our role as Christians is very much the same role that John had preceding Jesus. I'd like for us to take a few moments tonight and notice a few things about the ministry of John the Baptist, about his role as, in a, as a child of God and how we should mirror that and follow in His footsteps. Before we do that, would you bow with me, please, in prayer? Glorious Father in heaven, we are amazed that You allow us to be a part of Your plan. And we're thankful that You've allowed us to gather here again tonight to worship and honor and glorify You. We pray that everything we do is accepted by You, that it's pleasing to You. And if there's anything we're doing that's not pleasing, we pray that You would demonstrate that to us, that You would show us through Your Word that we might glorify You, because that is what our number one goal is, Father. We pray that you be with us as we study your word tonight, that our hearts will be open to what you have revealed, that we might follow in the footsteps of your apostles, of your saints, of your son. And tonight as we take a look at John the Baptist, that we might follow in his footsteps, that we might proclaim your excellencies, and that we might point people toward you and toward your son. Father, we pray that you would help us to distribute your life, to send it out to, every, to everybody. Father, we love you and we're thankful that you have loved us. We pray that you would forgive us. And we ask that the blood of Your Son would cleanse us from our iniquities because there are many. And we ask that You would wash us clean and help us to overcome the tempter. Help us as we look into this new week that we'll stand firm upon Your righteousness and that we'll gird ourselves with Your battle armor and that we'll stand strong against Satan. Thank You so much, Father, for being with us. Through Your Son we pray. Amen. As we take a look at John, the very first thing that I'd like you to notice is John chapter 3 and verse 30. In John chapter 3 and verse 30, John's disciples came to him and they complained about Jesus and how many people were leaving John and heading over to follow Jesus. And John uttered these words, He must increase, but I must decrease. What amazing humility. What a great example John the Baptist is for us there. In Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3 
and verse 5. The Bible says regarding John that Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. Can you imagine what an ego rush that would have been? They've gone out and started preaching and everybody from all around started to come just to listen to you and to hear you preach. How, that, I mean, you talk about driving a man's ego. That could have done it. And how easy it would have been to be in that situation. And when people start drifting off to go to listen to somebody else, no matter how greater he is, no matter what you know about him, how that could kind of just discourage you just a little bit and bring you down and, and cause you to be upset with God and his plan. And yet that wasn't John's problem at all. John understood exactly how it was supposed to work. Now his disciples had issues there in John 3, 26. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered, this is John chapter 3 and verse 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses, but I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase but I must decrease. John understood that the only reason he ever had any success in what he had accomplished was not because of his power, was not because of his prowess, was not because of his popularity, but because of God's grace. And understanding that it was all about God's grace and about God's will for his life, John was able to say, there is one that supersedes me. I must decrease. He must increase. And he realized that his whole job in the plan that God had laid out for him, was to point people to the one who was supposed to increase. He was the friend of the bridegroom. He was not the bridegroom. He wasn't upset that the bridegroom had come to claim his wife. He rejoiced. He must increase, but I must decrease. What about us? How does that transfer to us in our lives? We need to realize that what we're doing here is not about us. It's not about me. It's not about what I want. It's not about people listening to me. It's not about people listening to you. It's not about what we can accomplish or about what people can think about us. You know, there are people that serve God, ostensibly, but it's really all about themselves. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 2, Jesus warned in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6 and verse 2, So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. In verse 5, he says, When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites who love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. In verse 16, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance, so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Here were men who were performing religious service, but why? So that they might increase, which would cause God to decrease. Jesus provided the opposite of that in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. In Matthew 5 and verse 16, when Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's our job. I must decrease. God must increase. Less of self, more of God. And that's a growth process that we have to go through, just as John did. Remember John chapter 15 and verse 8. 
I believe, a mission statement for every child of God. John chapter 15 and verse 8, Jesus said, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be My disciples. Our job is to bear fruit, not that glorifies ourselves or makes us look good. Our job is to bear fruit that glorifies God. John said, I must decrease. He must increase. And we must follow in John's footsteps regarding that. Now, if we look in the book of Luke, in the book of Luke, chapter 1 and verse 17, in the book of Luke, chapter 1 and verse 17, there we find, as the angel is talking to Zacharias about this son who's going to be born to him, he says of John, he says, he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Excuse me, I find this to be a very interesting statement. As the angel says, he's going to be like Elijah, the spirit and power of Elijah. So much did God want us to understand that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5 says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So well did the Holy Spirit want us to know that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of that prophecy that he even told us about the wardrobe of Elijah and the wardrobe of John, seeing how they would match. You can look in 2 Kings chapter 1. I just find this phenomenal how thorough the Holy Spirit is. In 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 8. 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 8. They answered him, as they were asking, the king was asking about who this man was. They were asking, he was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound about his loins. And he said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. Now look in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 4. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 4, where John the Baptist is described to us, it says, Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Here was Elijah, a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. Here was John the Baptist. Well, he wasn't too hairy himself, but he had a coat of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. What's the Holy Spirit telling us? He's saying, here's the one that's coming in the footsteps of Elijah. Here's the one in the spirit and power of Elijah. But when we hear that, when we hear that John was supposed to come in the spirit and power of Elijah, we might be tempted to believe that because Elijah displayed miraculous powers, that that's what it's talking about. That John was going to display miraculous powers. But interestingly, the Scripture never tells us about one miracle, sign, or wonder that John ever performed. In fact, in John chapter 10 and verse 41, John chapter 10 and verse 41, and of course, I trust that you recognize that the Gospel of John was written by the Apostle John, not by John the Baptist, but the Apostle John here is telling us about John the Baptist. And in John chapter 10 and verse 41, the Apostle John records the reaction of the people to Jesus and their comparison of him to John. It says, Many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. It says, John performed no sign. When it talks about him coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah, it's not talking about miraculous power. It's talking about the boldness and the strength and the powerful spirit the attitude, the mindset that Elijah and John the Baptist both had in their preaching, in their presentation of God's message to the people. 
We can think about Elijah and in 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 18. We know about the great story that occurred there with the prophets on Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal. And in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 17, it says, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? And he said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. Here is Elijah, who stands boldly, even in the presence of kings, proclaiming the truth, even knowing that the king wouldn't like it. And in Luke chapter 3, in Luke chapter 3, we find that John did exactly the same thing. In Luke chapter 3, verse 18, So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. The boldness that John and Elijah both had in proclaiming the gospel, even to kings even when they wouldn't like it. Back in 1 Kings 18, beginning at verse 20, we could read the rest of the chapter, and we would see how Elijah boldly stood in the face of false prophets and false teachers and those who would teach error and proclaim to them the truth. John the Baptist did the same thing in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7, when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John was willing to face on those who were false teachers, who taught error and proclaimed the truth and called them to repentance even, just like Elijah, the spirit and power of Elijah. In 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 21, 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 21, we see that Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. But the people did not answer Him a word. Elijah taught a message of choice. You've got to choose either to keep doing what you've been doing or to repent and turn and serve God. And that's exactly the kind of message that John the Baptist presented. We can look at the beginning of Mark. In Mark chapter 1. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, and verse 4, it says in Mark 1, 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Preaching a baptism of repentance, a baptism of change, a baptism that said stop doing what you've been doing and start doing something else. The same kind of message that Elijah preached. John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, and we must follow in his footsteps. We must have that same boldness. We must boldly proclaim before everyone, no matter who they are, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must be able to stand up in the face of those who would teach error and false teachers. And we must proclaim the truth and we must call people to repentance, calling them to choose between God's path or the world's path. There's only one path, Matthew chapter 7 points out to us, the narrow way of God that we must follow. Few people will find it. But it's our job to proclaim that choice for people, no matter who they are. And we must do it with boldness and clarity so that people might know the will of God that they might be saved. As we consider John, we can look in Luke chapter 1 and verse 77. It says of John in Luke chapter 1 and verse 77 that his job was to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God. John taught a message of salvation 
through the mercy of God. Yet John, of course, taught them that they had to obey. We can look in Luke chapter 3. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 8. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 8, he said, Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. He taught them to repent. There had to be a change. In fact, he even taught them baptism back in chapter 3 and verse 3. He came into all the district around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then he taught them about the obedience that they were supposed to have in their continued lives. In verse 10 of Luke chapter 3, the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you've been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. John taught a gospel, a message of obedience, a message of submission, a message of repentance and change. And yet he was not teaching the folks a message of merit. What did, what did the message say? He said it would be a message of mercy from God. He would teach them about salvation and remission of sins by the mercy of God. And yet part of that was teaching the obedience to God. And that's exactly what we have to do as we follow in the footsteps of John. We teach a message of mercy and grace. We must teach the message that says there is no salvation in anyone save Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. As the apostles were questioned regarding their work and their power and ability. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, Peter responded, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. We must teach the message of mercy and grace and salvation in Jesus Christ and in no other. But as we teach that, we must be like John who teaches the obedience and the repentance and the submission to God that God has commanded if folks want to receive that mercy. They can't merit it. They cannot earn it. But the Bible demonstrates that we must obey God if we want to receive the mercy, the salvation that He has offered. We've got to teach them what it says in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. We've got to teach the message of Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26, 27. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves in Christ. And then Colossians chapter 2. And there's so many other passages we could look at, but Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. 
In Him, this is Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11, In Him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. We've got to teach that message of repentance faith and submission to Jesus Christ, being baptized for the remission of their sins if they want to receive this salvation that's by the mercy of our God. That's exactly what we have to do. The very same thing that John the Baptist did. We must follow in his footsteps. We look again in Luke, this time in chapter 1 and verse 79. It says that John the Baptist's job was to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. When you hear about giving light to those who are in the shadow of death, what do you think about when you hear that? The shadow of death. What Bible passage comes to mind? Anybody else think about the shepherd's psalm? Psalm 23. Clearly an allusion to Psalm 23. And if you look at verses 3 and 4 in Psalm 23, He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. John's job was to come and bring light to those who were in darkness, into the shadow of death, to guide their feet into the way of peace, to guide their feet into the path of righteousness. John was God's tool to provide His shepherding for the people to bring them out of the valley of the shadow of death, out of the darkness, and bring them into the light. And that is exactly what we're supposed to be doing. We are supposed to be helping people who are in darkness, who are lost in sin, and bringing them out of that darkness and bringing them into the light, which is in Jesus Christ. That's our job. And we have got to understand that people who are not in Christ are in darkness. And it doesn't matter what church they go to. It doesn't matter what they've done. It doesn't matter how good they've been. As we discussed this morning, if they are not in Christ, they are in darkness. They are in the shadow of death. And it is our responsibility, as it was John's responsibility, to bring the light to them so that they might come into the light. Keep in mind, who was John sent to? John wasn't sent to the pagans of the world. John was sent to the religious. John was sent to the Jews. And he proclaimed the light of the gospel to those people. And that is what we must do. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 11. In Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 11, Paul wrote, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. That's our job, to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. Not to hide in there with them. Excuse me, not to blend in. Not to dim our light so it won't show it quite as much. But to shine our lights brightly so that the works of darkness will be exposed so that others might be brought to the light. Jesus, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, demonstrated this in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 14. In Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 14, Jesus said to His kingdom citizens, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Nor do men light a lamp and place it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Shining a light that will guide others into the path of peace and righteousness so that they might also be children of God. What an amazing role God has for us. But finally, again in Luke chapter 1, in verse 17, the last part of that verse, we already learned from the one part of that that we should come in the spirit and power of Elijah. But the final point is to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That was John's job. Jesus was coming to the world. The Messiah was coming to the world. And John's job was to make ready the people for that, to prepare them for the coming of Jesus Christ. That is our job. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 and verse 10. There's the apostles gazed up into the heavens because Jesus had just been taken away from them in a cloud. It said, as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. In Acts 1.11, they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. He is coming again. And our job is to prepare people for that coming. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 28, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 28, the Hebrew writer speaks of it saying, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. Jesus is coming back. John was to prepare the people and make ready a people for Jesus' incarnation. Our job is to prepare and make ready a people for Jesus' revelation. He's coming back. Luke chapter 12 demonstrates some parables of judgment that talks about the preparation that needs to be made. In Luke chapter 12, beginning at verse 35, and this is a rather lengthy scripture, Luke chapter 12 and verse 35, we're going to read on through verse 48. Notice what it says, Luke 12, 35. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them, whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so. Blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, this is verse 45, My master will be a long time in coming, and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. 
and that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given, much will be required, and to whom they entrusted much of him they will ask all the more. All of these stories in this text talks about the preparation. The Lord is coming in judgment, and we must be ready. And part of our preparation is preparing others. Getting that message of Christ's return into the public domain so that more might be brought into the family of God and be ready when Jesus returns in judgment. 2 Peter chapter 3. In 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, Peter wrote, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. Looking for and hastening. That means being ready. (coughs) Excuse me. How many of us are looking forward to that day? Hastening it. Wanting it to be quicker. Or are we saying, Oh, Lord, could you hold off a minute? Could you just give me another couple years? There's some other things I'd really rather do other than go to heaven right now. He says, looking for and hastening. Be prepared. Be ready and getting other people prepared because this earth and all its works are going to be burned out. But we're looking for a new heaven, a new earth where righteousness dwells. A new order of things that God has established filled with righteousness. And we must be ready to meet Jesus on that day. And our job, like John's, is to get people ready. These are the things that we must do. We must follow in the footsteps of John. I'll tell you, there is one difference. I know I said repeatedly that we do it exactly like John, but there is one difference. And the one difference is that everything John did, he did looking ahead for something that was supposed to happen. Everything that we do, we do based on looking back at something that has happened. John knew that a Messiah was coming who would bring salvation. Brethren, that Messiah has come. And that salvation has been brought. And therefore, we look forward to when that Messiah will return. And perhaps that's why Jesus said what He did in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 11. We might have a tendency to look at John and feel like we can't ever be like him. We can't do what he did. We can't accomplish what he accomplished. Certainly in God's eyes, we can't be a servant as John was. And yet Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. If we're in the kingdom of heaven, we're greater than John. Why? Because John was looking for something that hadn't happened yet. And we're there. We're in what John was looking for. He didn't get to see it. But we do. And how amazing that is. We must follow in the footsteps of John. Helping draw people into the kingdom that John announced. Drawing them to the Messiah that John foretold taking them out of darkness and the shadow of death and bringing them into the light, making ready a people 
for the great coming of the Lord. That's our job. Would you pull out your songbooks, please? Number 280, I have decided to follow Jesus. Number 280 in the big book, I have decided to follow Jesus. John the Baptist preceded Jesus. But he was following Jesus. Because he was doing what Jesus wanted him to do. That's the question for us tonight. Have we followed Jesus? Are we following Jesus? Are we following in the footsteps of Jesus? Jesus came into this world. He lived. He died. He was buried. And then He arose. And in Romans chapter 6, the passage that we read earlier, it points out that we must follow in Jesus' footsteps. Dying to sin. Being buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him to walk in newness of life. Have you followed Jesus through the grave yet? Having your sins washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that He died to take your sins away? Have you turned from your sins, committing your life to Christ to do His will, confessing your faith in Him, and being baptized, immersed in water for the remission of those sins? If we can help you follow in the footsteps of John, in the footsteps of Jesus, won't you come right now as we stand and sing this hymn?